And first, a quick word from our podcast sponsor. FactSet delivers superior data, analytics, and flexible technology to help more than 170,000 users see and seize opportunities sooner. For over 40 years, we have given investment professionals the edge to outperform with informed insights, workflow solutions across the portfolio lifecycle, and industry-leading support from dedicated specialists. Through market changes and technological progress, we're proud to have been recognized with multiple awards for our analytical and data-driven solutions, while staying connected to our clients and each other. Learn more at www.factset.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome again to The Sustainability Story. I'm Matt Orsog at CFA Institute, and my guest today is an old friend, Mauro Cunha. He is a Brazilian who has been in the corporate governance and sustainability world for, for quite a long time. He's got some great stories to tell, and so I thought it'd be great to catch up with Mauro on the podcast. Mauro, welcome. Pleasure to be here, Matt. Well, first of all, before we jump into the topics we're going to talk about, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got here. Okay. Well, I like to say that I'm on my third career right now. Uh, first one being as an equity research analyst and portfolio manager. I happen to be one of, one of the first CFAs in Brazil, uh, maybe the first handful in, back in 1997. Uh, then I became uh, an NGO manager as the head of AMEC, which is uh, known as the Minority Investor Association in Brazil. It congregates asset managers and asset owners both Brazilian and global, big guys like uh, BlackRock, Tiro Price, and so on, and works with an agenda of uh, fostering good corporate governance practices and minority shareholder rights. And my third career, which is where I am now, is as a professional uh, board member. I am an independent, non-executive director in many Brazilian companies. And of course, uh, these three careers have overlapped over time. So my first board assignment was back in 1999, and only since 2019, it became my uh, exclusive uh, activity. So that's, in a nutshell, uh, where I am right now. That's a great summary and leaves us a lot, of, a lot of interesting things to talk about. But before we get into it, we'll, we'll kind of set the scene broadly and then and drill down in some of those things. The question I ask all my guests is, you know, is there one number or fact or a set of numbers, set of facts that kind of help frame this conversation? we're going to have today. Uh, so if you could give us some of those just to help frame the conversation and then we'll drill down mm-hmm. farther. Matt, listen, I gave some thought when you provoked me uh, along those lines. <laughs> and I, I think the answer is no, because I could come up with a, a, a very large number of important uh, data points that point to the challenges in sustainability, both from a social and environmental perspective uh, in Brazil sheer number of square miles or kilometers that are being deforested each year, data on greenhouse gases, uh, especially in the Amazon, given uh, deforestation. It, it's just very amazing to me that uh, the, the biggest emitters in Brazil are not the big cities like Sao Paulo. It's actually a tiny city in Pará that emits maybe 100 times more per head than Sao Paulo does. But the bottom line is that, and and this is an important issue when we're dealing with sustainability at the company's level or the investor level, is that this has to be seen as a multidimensional challenge. So um, if we get too hung up on one particular issue, 
uh, we're not seeing the broad picture. And I'm going to give you an example of how this plays out. I, I'm on the board of a shopping center company in Brazil. It's the largest shopping center company. And this is a company that has no control of shareholders, so it is very exposed to global invest, investment managers. Right. And some of these have a strong engagement and stewardship policies and have engaged with the company on uh, ESG issues. And the amount of pressure on the company to discuss climate change and have policies related to climate change is huge. Now, climate change is hugely important. And I see it on two other boards where this is very much present in every decision in a day-to-day, -day, a mining company and a pulp and paper company. Now, for this particular shopping center company, we have properties that are inside big cities and surrounded by five or six favelas. Now, the social realities surrounding these properties is uh, much more impactful to the business than a, a climate changing agenda. So it's not that one precludes the other, but uh, it's, a, it's a priority issue. And given the fact that uh, we realized that we were behind in thinking about the social aspects of the interference in the city and in society that our properties represent, the board decided to focus on, on the social aspects of ESG and have a secondary approach to initiatives related to, to climate change, which have mostly, mostly to do with measuring uh, impacts in terms of uh, garbage and, and greenhouse gases, but admittedly, not a lot of action right now. So it's a priority issue. So resources are limited. And uh, I think that it's important, especially from those that are making these demands, and it is important that investors make these demands, to understand that uh, different companies will have different priorities and different impacts when it touches uh, sustainability. No, that's a great that's a great point, and I think we're you know at this time in the world there's a, there's so much focus on the E with uh, climate and, and other issues, but but that's a great point. It's what's the most material to each company. Precisely. I want to ask you a little bit about where we've been, where we are, and where we're going with corporate governance and sustainability from your point of view in Brazil. You know, I've known you for for quite a long time and I came into your orbit when uh, you were at Amic focusing mostly on corporate governance issues. And you know, a lot of people might not know about the Novo Mercado in uh, Brazil and how it works. So just give us a little brief history of you know, where we've been, where we are, where you think, see things going in the governance and sustainability world in Brazil. Well, first a disclaimer. Uh, they say that uh, for men with a hammer, any pin is a nail, right? So right. I'm a governance person, but I'm convinced, and I've been saying this uh, in many places, that ENS without G is greenwashing. So first, governance must be, be dealt with. We must make sure that we have not only good corporate governance practices, but the correct practices given a company's ownership model, history, where it stands in its cycle, and not a lot of thought has been given to that. So uh, we went through a long process of improving corporate governance uh, in, in Brazil. I think we reached sort of a, a stalling point, and we can talk a little bit more about that. But uh, unless we, we, 
we have governance uh, working well. Uh, ENS will not be uh, material, will not be consequential, I should say. Now, to think about corporate governance, uh, it, it's very easy usually to think about the, the control aspects of it and the regulatory aspects, and they are important, don't get me wrong. And in this aspect, uh, uh, Brazil was a leader and now became a laggard. Unfortunately, we've seen numerous examples that uh, there's been a weakening of the uh, resolve to see governance as important and having consequences for bad behavior. The regulator has always been weak, but it is now non-existent. We've had the largest uh, corporate scandals in the world in Brazil, and Petrobras was a case in point. You know, I was an independent director at Petrobras. And CVM was unable to punish anyone for breach of fiduciary duties. Remember, this is a company that had to take write-downs of tens of billions of dollars that had people returning billions of dollars in stolen money, so confessions. But CVM was unable to punish anyone. In a scenario like this, you don't have the external forces driving good behavior. And uh, governance, in my opinion, is built with a series of gatekeepers, uh, which are important, each in their own rights, to make the system work. When we look at Brazil today, we see several failures of these uh, gatekeepers. And I mentioned the regulators, but I also mentioned the investors. We, at, at AMEC, we, had, uh, we spent a lot of efforts in trying to bring the concepts of stewardship to Brazil. And I'll be quite frank with you, after uh, six years watching the development of it, I'm very disappointed. I don't see institutional investors acting as owners in Brazil. And so what we see today, again, is a lot of checklist approaches to ESG. So there are perhaps more questions to the IR departments about headlines, headline issues surrounding governance. But as an independent director that sometimes has to stand firmly in certain situations, if I do that, but when management talks to investors, if, if the issues I'm bringing up in the board are not being brought by investors to management as well, it is very hard to, to implement change and to be taken seriously at the end of the day. So that's on the day-to-day -day and that also in voting for directors, in evaluating uh, directors, uh, thinking about compensation. The, the, the matter of compensation is particularly complicated because disclosure in Brazil is much worse than in the United States, for example. But even with the little disclosure that there is, investors don't have the ability to process it or the willingness. So it's very hard to, to have a meaningful conversation on executive compensation with an institutional investor. It takes time. It is complicated and the devil's in the detail. So uh, there are many challenges uh, in terms of corporate governance. And, and as a result, uh, boards are not what we wanted them to be. We have a lot of complacency. Again, 
it's a very it's a much better scenario than what we had 10 years ago when or 15 years ago when we started talking about corporate governance but i can point to very few boards that i've seen or participated that actually adds value in a broad sense so not only economic value but societal value as well it's one important thing Matt, that i always say on the boards that i serve about sustainability Sustainability is not about doing good, and it is not about responding to the demands, the flavor of the day in terms of what investors want to talk about. Well, in Brazil, uh, all companies have an article in their bylaws, which is usually one of the first four or five articles that says the company has an indefinite time frame. So it's not long term. It's indefinite, which means forever. By meaning forever, it means a horizon that extends way beyond what a spreadsheet can detect. Now, when we realize that, we understand that the issues surrounding sustainability have to be, cannot be modeled as we usually do in a capital expenditure project or something. So bringing that framework in so that people understand that they are doing this because it is their duty, going back to the Milton Friedman article of 1970, of the 70s that people love to hate, that the business of business is business. I think the business of business is business, but the concept of business has changed because first, it's forever. And second, the social license costs more these days. If you don't do that, if you do not act in a sustainable manner, it will jeopardize your business projects. So going back to, to your question, where we are, where we're going, mixed picture, okay? So a lot of frustration and, I, and I'm, I'm a very anxious person uh, and, and, and I like to see results. So sometimes I get frustrated. If we zoom out and look over the past 10, 20 years where we were, where we are, it has improved, but maybe it hasn't improved fast enough. Boards are still not adding value in general and are not approaching sustainability for the right reasons, in my opinion. The follow-up question I have on that is the role of investors and institutional investors in Brazil. And I know historically the, the, the amount of institutional investing has been low relative to other places. You know, there's a lot of controlled companies. Uh, a lot of the institutional investor ownership comes from outside the country. But just from an investor's perspective, because that, you know that's most of our listeners here are investors, what is the inv- is institutional investor landscape? How has that evolved or has it not evolved enough? How has engagement evolved or is, has it not engaged enough, both inside and outside of Brazil? Well, first, let me tell you that, in my opinion, the role of the global and foreign investor in Brazil today is overrated. Mm-hmm. It has been very important in the past, but uh, Brazil became much less relevant than it was before. So in 1988, Brazil represented uh, 25% of the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. Before the exclusion of Russia, we were at 4%. Now, it's a mixture of, of things. Of course, there was the rise of China and so on, right. but uh, Brazil lost many opportunities, GDP-wise, but also in terms of relevance of its capital markets. You mentioned the Novo Mercado that was created 22 years ago. 
it was the best case in terms of evolution of corporate governance practices. And what, uh, people looked at it with envy and wanted to repeat it all over the place. Any serious analysis today of the relevance of the Novo Mercado leads to the conclusion that it is not relevant today because there's been so many workarounds and both B3 and the CVM have been so complacent in terms of uh, letting things be a little bit different than expected, uh, super voting rights and whatnot, that it's not a big issue anymore. And nobody wants to emulate Brazil on the, the Novo Mercado thing. So again, that being said, when BlackRock goes to Brazil, everybody listens and they should. The problem is that there are not many BlackRocks that take the time to engage with Brazilian companies. And they are less and less as time passes. I know of many global managers that have simply eliminated their Brazil desk or even the Latin American desk and decided to index the portfolio, which in many institutions means that, well, the very best they, they're going to do is to follow ISS on whatever they recommend. So the global investors are a limited driving force for ESG. And the local institutional investors have problems because of what I call their institutional architecture, which even more so than in the US, I believe, is short-term oriented. Uh, it is prone to conflicts of interest by the links between asset managers and, and big financial institutions. And not only that, because there's been a lot of growth in independence, institutional asset management, but Brazil as a society is a very interlinked and interconnected. It's, it, it's a Latin thing that was described by historian Sergio Boaco de Holanda as the cordial man. I mean, uh, uh, it's very hard to, to, to criticize the system. And it, it is not very well seen in, in Latin environments in Brazil, that is particularly so. And we see that in the posture of asset managers in Brazil. As for the asset owners, we have not developed our pension fund industry as we should have. We had, again, a big development in the 80s or 90s or something. We have big pension funds of the state-owned companies. We do not have new pension funds. Uh, so these old ones are basically mature, they're divesting. But still, that being said, there's a lot of money in the hands of asset managers and asset owners, and they would have the ability to positively influence Brazilian companies. But they don't. Uh, and especially given the fact that the home bias in Brazil is very big. Again, for historical reasons, not going to get into that, but uh, uh, there's a lot of home bias. There's no incentive. There's no client pressure for them to engage, and there's no regulatory pressure for them to engage. Since that is true, and it costs money to engage, then they don't. Given that the performance implications of engagement are very long-term, and the industry is short-term oriented, the incentive is not there. Right, yeah, no, that makes sense. Just a point of order for folks who, who aren't uh, corporate governance nerds like we are. <laughs> the Novo Mercado that I mentioned and you mentioned is the, the new market, Novo market, new market in Brazil. And it, it, it was 
established, like you said, 22 years ago. And what it was is a higher corporate governance standard for companies in who listed on the Nova Mercado. So it was meant to attract capital for companies that had a lower risk because of their corporate governance. And it was a model for a while. Other countries wanted to em- emulate it. But like you said, in time, there's been workarounds and it, and it hasn't, you know, it hasn't done exactly what uh, what it was meant to do. But so there's a lot of interesting literature out there on the Nova Mercado that that I think people can avail themselves of outside this podcast, but just to let them know what that was. Well, the CFA Institute did a study on that together with AMEC That's right. on the effects of the one share, one vote, which is one characteristic of the Nova Mercado. So it is available on the AMEC website, certainly on the CFA website as well. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for mentioning that. Thanks for the plug. I'll have to, I'll have to slip, you, slip you some money the next time I see you at the conference. <laughs> I'm a member. For that plug. <laughs> well, you've already you've already told a couple interesting stories. I remember when I met you, you had a lot of interesting stories about what goes on uh, corporate governance in Brazil and uh, boards in Brazil and what you can talk about. I don't want to get you in trouble, but any interesting stories about this just kind of set the scene of of uh, corporate governance and, and, and how boards are operating in Brazil that would be uh, mm-hmm. informative to our listeners. Well, let, let me give you two examples here. One is that we... In Brazil, it, it is more frequent to have contested board elections than the U.S., perhaps, mm-hmm. in percentage terms. And uh, what we saw in some of these contested elections is that a lot of institutions that speak wonders about diversity and inclusion, for example, when push comes to shove, I mean, these things are forgotten by the roadside. So... I'm on the board of a company that is 100% male, and I'm on the board of a second one that has only one female after a, a contested uh, system. So this, these are opportunities, I think, to, to reflect as to how much people are walking to talk when they talk about ESG and particularly diversity and, and inclusion. Now, in terms of how things work on boards in Brazil, I am in the... <laughs> in the process of a company that is being taken over in a, in a hostile takeover. And uh, I may write a book about it because the process is amazing for the lack of, of tools to, to reach the best decision-making process. The deal was approved by shareholders. I was the sole dissenting vote. So the jury's still out, whether it's good or bad. I have a feeling that a hostile takeover destroys a lot of value in many situations, and, and it will certainly be the case in this one. But the, the way the board has reached its conclusions and how it has interacted with uh, shareholders shows that if a company decides to be listed and not have a controlling shareholder, the role of the board as stewards of the owners need to be exercised every day. The board needs to have legitimacy, needs to engage, needs to listen, enact upon the things that are said, working as a filter, of course, because they will, they will listen to all kinds of crazy things. But most of the times, boards are caught up in the regular flow of the decision-making process throughout the year and don't realize the long-term implications of the lack of engagement. So if I, if I could change one thing today in the boards, and again, my experience is Brazilian boards, 
it will be to to really make my peers realize that they are really representing a plurality of shareholders and they have to to be responsive and they have to be they have to understand the expectations of the shareholders and the stakeholders with an adequate process all right if uh, memory serves there is a upcoming presidential election in brazil in just a couple months i was hoping to forget that <laughs> Well, just uh, broadly, what do you expect, if anything, to change in the corporate governance sustainability landscape depending on the outcome? Listen, the situation in Brazil is not very different from the U.S., which is the political debate is dominated by the extremes. And this it's very hard for that to have positive consequences, whoever wins. Yeah. So I think that uh, we are still going through a cycle where we will have a lot of hubris which will be a consequence of this extremism. Yeah. This will not be positive to foster an ESG agenda, whoever wins, for different reasons. Uh, so, yeah. and I still have hope that we will have a third option, but <laughs> this hope is fading every day. But uh, assuming the two leaders, Bolsonaro and Lula, we have under Bolsonaro what I call shallow liberalism which is, okay, hands off the market, but at the same time, very heavy governments. So taxes and, and social expenditures and so on, and, and pork, basically. But uh, on a regulatory front, this view that you have to be hands off. Yeah, laissez-faire attitude, yeah. You can ask whether this is uh, philosophical or pragmatic, because the people supporting this faction benefits from less regulation. But... That's what it is. And if we get Lula elected, on the other hand, we'll see a more interventionist state. I don't think we're going to see the importance of incentives to build that ESG agenda that is necessary, but we will have the heavy hand of the state regulating many things and some following private interests, as we've seen in the previous PT administration, when the state-owned companies uh, uh, were used to channel billions and billions to friends of the king. So I think that the evolution of ESG will depend on the leaders of the private sector. And here, Matt, I, I, I come with a, a degree of optimism because I see an increasing number of leaders that are understanding the agenda and really living it. And uh, they have the ability to impact their organization, to speak out and to contaminate in a positive way their peers or even their competitors in the right direction. So everything that we see in terms of good being done in the Amazon, for example, is being led by th these forces, by the private sector forces, which resonates in some levels of the public sector. So for example, even if we have a federal government that doesn't believe in protecting the Amazon, we may have some municipalities or we can have the judiciary in some states being open to work with the private sector to make sometimes just tweaks that make a lot of difference. You see, a lot of the problem in the Amazon has to do with land ownership, unclear land ownership. If we'd be able to map 
the entire Amazon and have land registration linked to a, a single blockchain instead of hundreds of notary offices that are fraud prone or whatever, this would, this would do wonders. So I think we will see an increasing number of initiatives that do make a difference and do not depend on broader policymaking, at least in this phase. We should, we should not expect policymaking to be a driver of positive change. Okay. Well, get, that gets into uh, the next question I had is, you, know, you talk a little, and that's fascinating, the, the land ownership issue of the Amazon and how that can be reformed. And I hadn't heard that. That's, that's, that's interesting. But is some, you know, someone from outside Brazil, you know, we hear all the time about how the Amazon's endangered. We need to save the Amazon rainforest. And you touched on it a little bit there and what's going on. I'm just curious, how is, that, how is the issue framed in Brazil? And how do Brazilians think about it? The first wave was that uh, impression that, okay, foreigners want to mess with the Amazon, so they destroyed all their forests, and now they, they want to protect ours. Uh, right. But uh, I think there's an, there's an increasing perception that the Amazon is key, for example, for the water supply in Sao Paulo. Right. Because the rain system comes from the Amazon and, and feeds the reservoirs in the south and the southeast. And if yeah. that gets broken, uh, we will not have water in the richest regions of the country. So that is increasingly being understood. The importance of uh, building first-rate supply systems, which originally was fostered by the demand, especially from Europe, either you get your act together in terms of supply chain or we will not buy your beef, it is now seen as uh, intrinsic to the, to the business models. And so Brazil has wonderful stories to tell in terms of the managed uh, uh, forest, forest industries for uh, pulp and paper and other uses for biomass. Uh, not to mention that Brazil has perhaps one of the cleanest uh, energy matrix in the world, hydro-based. The development of ethanol in the 70s, which... Uh, uh, people don't realize that uh, a car based in ethanol is more efficient over its lifetime than a, a plug-in plug electric vehicle because of, it doesn't need the metals for that and, and, and the disposal of batteries and so on and so forth. So it's better to run ethanol-based cars, sugarcane ethanol-based cars. So Brazil has a lot of things in its favor. It's well positioned to build an infrastructure for green hydrogen. And uh, I think this will all be uh, private sector led. So don't expect the government to do it. Companies need to realize that it is in their interest. We have competitive advantages given our natural position and we should use these, these advantages. We should, uh, we should not destroy them. That's a great point about the, the auto industry. I hadn't thought about that. I knew the ethanol revolution in cars came from Brazil, but that's a great point of when people take, think about, oh, EVs are going to take over as well. There's a lot of mining that's going to need to go on for all those, all that equipment, all those batteries. I think it uses, and I'd have to go back and check, but it's like four or five times the copper you know, that a normal that a normal car uses. And you go down copper and cobalt and, and zinc and lithium and all the metals that you're going to have to extract 
uh, and that's you know that's its own e issue. Uh, and so, if if the whole country of Brazil it runs on ethanol from from sugarcane, that might be you know that will likely be a different a different road mm-hmm. that they take. Yeah, now, listen, mining is a good example, and I own the board of a mining company. <laughs> So I may be biased, you can discount what I'm saying, but right. uh, mining has to be part of the solution. And it is an industry that is bedeviled and, and value where I serve had its own problems with the disasters, which were absolutely unexcusable and may not happen again. But uh, there's a difference between professional mining and illegal mining. The environmental destruction of illegal mining is outstanding it's huge huge and the impact it has in indigenous communities cannot be described as opposed to professional mining done by valley and other uh, large companies which are regulated and very closely watched by investors so there's an interesting video that i wish i could uh, uh, share with you uh, showing the state of para since uh, the 1970s and it has this green blog, which is the Amazon forest in the state of Pará. And it slowly disappears as you move on in time. And from that large green picture, uh, as the years go by, there's a green square that is untouched. And all the rest becomes yellow. Yeah. And in the end, it's basically just that green square. That green square is a national forest protected by Vali. And the Karajas mine is in the middle of it. Now, the Karajas mine occupies 2 or 3% of the area, and the rest is protected. We're talking about, I don't, I don't want to have the, the, the wrong number here. So it, it is a very relevant area that is protected by a mining company. The same mining company that has, has just relinquished its mining rights in all indigenous territories where we did not have informed consent all right we'll fin- we'll finish up with a little fun the uh, the World Cup is later this year and I'm talking to a Brazilian who is uh, who is a uh, you know Brazil is always one of the favorites I haven't been following it enough I'm, I'm sure but what are what are your thoughts on the upcoming uh, World Cup and what is what are folks in Brazil I think that thinking uh, and hoping for in, in, in every World Cup Brazil has a, a lot of chances because uh, this is something we're really good at. I am not fanatical about soccer, so I root for Flamengo, which is the uh, the biggest uh, uh, team there. And I usually only follow when Flamengo is doing good. So uh, we had a wonderful year in 2019. Um, we had a terrible beginning of this year. We are having a, a good year now. So I think uh, soccer, or if you allow me to call it football, um, has improved, has improved a lot in terms of and the professionalism, and now we have uh, profitable uh, clubs uh, such as Flamengo, such as Palmeiras. Uh, again, corporate governance improved. So there's the, the man with the hammer again. Uh, and we are turning out more players. Uh, uh, we're exporting a lot of players. Uh, you see the big European clubs always uh, uh, getting these Brazilians. They always have a chance to... Uh, uh, to come back and work for the national team. And uh, many foreign players now playing in Brazil as well. So the level of football in the country has gone up. Uh, and uh, I think this is uh, very positive. Uh, I think that 
the national championships are, uh, are not yet in the European level, but uh, the governance surrounding football is a lot better. And this uh, has positive repercussions toward chances in the World Cup. So it was a very nerdy answer to a fun question. <laughs> No, and I'm glad I'm I'm glad you got corporate governance in there. Yeah, I've, I've heard. I remember hear. I remember hearing stories about the the poor governance of uh, Brazilian teams, and it's good to know that that's improved. And I'll check back with you uh, at the end of the year Do that. Uh, on on how on how Brazil is done. Uh, finally, we usually give our listeners a little bit of homework. Uh, you know, if they're if they're interested in the topic we discuss, you know, we only have 30, 40 minutes. We've been talking. Uh, what are some resources, whether it's something written, podcasts, or something to, to watch, uh, that you recommend they give uh, they give uh, some time to to learn more about ESG sustainability in Brazil? Well, again, being biased, uh, I think that Vale is producing a lot of interesting materials and uh, increasing its uh, transparency and disclosure. So if our uh, listeners have a chance to read the sustainability, the, the integrated report of Vali, uh, I recommend doing that. It gives you a, a broad picture of a company that impacts uh, ENS very strongly uh, and uh, is uh, organizing this uh, multidimensional approach to uh, not only mitigate the bad impacts, but actually be a force for good. Uh, Vali now has a, uh, a goal of uh, helping removing uh, 500,000 people from uh, the extreme poverty level uh, in the areas it operates. And this uh, focuses the minds that uh, uh, it's not enough to protect the forest. The forest needs to be self-sufficient uh, and uh, people need to be in the center. So uh, I would very much uh, recommend using that as, as a resource. We put a lot of uh, effort uh, into that and, um, and, and it's improving every day. That's great. All right, well, uh, I, I have a date to catch up with you. Uh, uh, when, I don't think they're in the same group, but if the United States plays Brazil at any point, we'll have to make a friendly wager and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll catch up with you at the end of the year on the World Cup. Always good to talk to you, Mauro. I'm sure I'll run into you at a conference somewhere soon down the line. I'll visit you Take soon. Take care. Okay. Take care. Okay. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye.